Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Chuckers? Chuck Tran? Um, Yeah, I had to spice it up a little bit with some old school stuff. Uh, And no one else is here with us. We're, We're alone out there in the ether. Um, and this is stuff you should know. Although my prediction is, <clears throat> uh, you know, we started recording a bit early today since we're on our own. I bet guest producer Dave and short stuff producer Dave is going to chime in in about five minutes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I'll look <laughs> forward to hearing what he says. <laughs> uh, what's your deal with karaoke? Uh, I, I sort of know, but I think the people should know. We, sh- we, sh- we should exchange stories. Oh, okay. I like karaoke. Um, I particularly like karaoke in the K-Box, which we'll talk about, which is basically just a little private karaoke room for you and your friends. Have some great memories um, of karaoke like that. Um, but I'll do it in front of an audience if I get a drink or two in me, you know. Not too much, though. You go too much, you start <laughs> trying to, like, you know, fight the piano player or something like that. Uh, oh, so like live karaoke? Yeah, I've mentioned it a couple of times, but Sig Gold's Request Room in Manhattan is mm-hmm. the place to go for live piano karaoke. Um, it's just a beautiful, wonderful place. So if you haven't been there, go check it out. It's great. About as good as live karaoke gets, like live instrument karaoke. All right, so I haven't been there. I will go. Still? I, f- I forget, you know. I thought you would have gone this past year. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, haven't been there. Never been in a K-Box. Really? Um, no, never had mm. the private carry. Uh, you know, we'll pronounce it karaoke, even though it's kare okay. Kara okay. Kara okay, but <clears throat> we're not going to do that. Really. <laughs> no, we're not. Because I think <laughs> Dave Ruse helps us out. He's like, you can pronounce it correctly, but don't be expected to right. be invited out to karaoke night with your friends anymore. Right. After you practice your karate. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, so I. Um, have done live karaoke a few years ago on my birthday. We went to the um, the one that has the rock band in the Virginia Highlands. I don't know that one. Yeah, I mean, they have the full-on band. Mm-hmm. It's rock and roll live karaoke. Sounds fun. Uh, one of the local Atlanta DJs, English Nick, <laughs> is there to serve as um, sort of a backup singer, and they can mix his vocals in more if you're really bad because no one wants to hear that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Sure. Uh, but I get up there and did uh, Surrender by Cheap Trick, and he uh, I saw him at one point even stand away from the mic, and I was like, I've got this. Oh, <laughs> wow. He, he, he like, went and did something else. Huh? Maybe ate some corn chips or something? <laughs> the tip of the cap. Right. Uh, but my deal with karaoke is I used to be scared to death to try it, uh-huh. and that was when I had severe stage fright, performance anxiety, which I completely got over because now I'm in a band that sings in front of people. Mm -hmm. You and I get on stage in front of 1,400 people, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't bother me anymore. I I think I'd I'd still probably be a little nervous to do like a acoustic open mic thing. (laughs) Yeah, and you should be for a number of reasons. (laughs) But uh, it's just funny how I used to be so scared and really overthink karaoke like – Sit in the room, anxiety, sweats. I really uh, want to do it, but I won't put my name down. Right. And then, you know, the night comes and goes and I don't do it. Then I have this guilt and bad feelings. It was a, it was a thing. Wow. How old, but, how uh, old now, were you at the time? Oh, I mean, this was in my 
20s and mm. into my early 30s, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when I moved to L.A. is when I really started. I guess it was in my 20s because when I moved to L.A. is when I uh, finally did it. I was like, this is fine. And I sing better than a lot of these people. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great feeling to, to you know, be done and have the people you're with be like, I had no idea you could do that. That's really impressive. It's yeah, great. it's fun. Yeah, for sure. I enjoy it thoroughly. Do you have a standard karaoke song that you, you do or two? Yeah, I mean, I usually try to do, uh, and I think we've talked about this, the uh, Under Pressure by Queen and Bowie, and I do kind of both parts. <laughs> oh, wow. At and, the same um, time? You do like well, the, the Tibetan yeah. throat chanting kind of thing? <laughs> uh, but I, I've made some mistakes, too. I tried to do Foreigners Cold as Ice at a friend's, uh, not at their wedding, but wedding weekend at a bar in Philly, and I just was feeling it and was like, I'd forgotten how high that song is. It was Yeah, that can be a problem when you like start in your range, but then you forget, oh, it keeps going up. That's a, that's a real karaoke problem. And actually, I saw, Chuck, that if you do that enough times, you can get what are called karaoke polyps, which are... Oh, really? Yeah, it's basically <laughs> like polyps that grow on your vocal cords from straining your vocal cords by trying to sing like a professional without the training of a professional singer. So it can be yeah. deadly dangerous. Maybe not the deadly part, but it can be dangerous. Yeah, and I used to do the mental gymnastics of kind of like stepping outside and going through the song mentally real quick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to oh, be yeah, like, definitely. all right, can, can I hit the parts? For sure, <laughs> for sure. And you should. I think just as a responsible karaoke singer, you kind of do need to, to make sure that you can sing the song because, yeah, it's kind of funny to you if you do a bad karaoke performance, but the point of karaoke is to like blow everybody's socks off, like just, just, Tear the roof off the sucker is, is kind of my personal motto every time I grab the mic. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I've had some times where I've seen some performances at the live karaoke thing. There was this country guy that clearly drives in from, you know, country Georgia to do this. Mm -hmm. And he had a cowboy hat on and he did Wanted Dead or Alive. Oh, and yeah. You could tell that's his deal. He comes into the city. He crushes it. Uh -huh. And then goes back to the farm the next day, and everyone's like, who was that lonesome cowboy who exactly. just wandered through town? Who was that masked stranger? <laughs> it's pretty cool to see an, an everyday person just get up there and really kill it. Yeah, and I'm sure that guy has to go out of town because he'd probably get beat up at his town if he tried to do that there. You know, he's Maybe. got like this, like being anonymous, too, kind of enables that karaoke gusto, I think, as well. Yeah. So you said something earlier. Um, you compared uh, karaoke and karate, and mm -hmm. there's a good reason for that because karate, karate, means empty hand. And um, karaoke is actually short for karaoke. Man, I even practiced this. <laughs> karaoke. Um, nice. Which is like a romanji when when um, people in Japan take an English word and just kind of Japan it up a little bit. So instead of orchestra, it's orchestra, and kata so it means empty, and orchestra means orchestra. So it's an empty orchestra, and that's really what kar karaoke karaoke is. It's it, it's slang for empty orchestra, and it actually predates the the concept of karaoke that we think of today. Yeah, apparently in the early 50s, there was a, you know, a pit orchestra in Osaka. They said, we want, you know, I'm not even sure what they wanted. You would assume better wages or more bathroom breaks or something. <laughs> and they went on strike and the theater replaced them with a, a sound system. 
and, and it was from Matsuda Electronics. And apparently, <laughs> as uh, the story goes, an uh, executive from Matsuda came there, heard the system, and said, it's uh, the orchestra, there's music playing, but the orchestra pit is empty, and thus the, the term was coined. Empty orchestra. And that was Pretty neat story. That was in the 50s. Um, I think 1952, was it? Yes. So, um, karaoke, as we understand it today, didn't come along for a good, almost two decades later. So, there was yeah. this idea that anytime you had pre-recorded music, um, especially if it was played in instead of, a you know, where a live performer would play, um, that that was karaoke, karaoke. Um, so, it was kind of a handy term that a guy named uh, Deska uh, Inoue um, used when he came up with karaoke. And the idea of who invented karaoke, of who came up with it, is not just widely settled. But for the most part, there is, if, like, the, those who know cite uh, Deska Inoue as the uh, as the guy who who actually came up with this, as we understand it. Yeah, I did see, you know, there were a couple of other people in the late 60s that kind of, messed around with machines that kind of did what what the karaoke machine does but yeah his story is great he's a if you look him up a picture he's a pretty cool looking customer mm-hmm. and in Osaka in the 50s he was in high school and he was a drummer in a rock band and then tried to be a musician professionally for a little while but like so many musicians that tried that for a little while ended up uh, back at home in his late 20s living with his parents in Kobe. Yeah, but he gave it a good decade-long try, you know? Sure. He was out on the road. I, I read this really great um, kind of mini-biography or autobiography um, from the early 2000s that was published in the appendix. It's called Voice Hero. So look that up. It's a really He's just a charming guy. Totally. Um, but he, he tried it for about 10 years, and it just didn't work out because most of the money was pocketed by the older, more established musicians. Um, and it just, he wasn't going anywhere. I think he said that he realized that no matter how much he practiced, and he really practiced, um, he would never be as good as somebody who had natural talent, and it just wasn't for him. So he decided to, to try something else. But he didn't want to give up um, playing entirely. He wanted to try to make a, a living somehow from playing music. And it just so happens that his parents living in Kobe placed him at this really particularly good spot for karaoke to begin, which is Kobe, which is about 30 minutes outside of Osaka, um, where the very famous Kobe beef comes from. Mm. And at at the time in Kobe, and for a while before that, there was a popular um, pastime of sing-alongs, which is basically like you go to a bar, a snack is what they were called, and there'd be somebody playing a piano or a guitar or something like that, and everybody would sing, you know, popular songs along with the the mini band that was playing. Yeah, but that was like group singing together, mm-hmm. uh, not like a single person uh, either delighting or embarrassing themselves. <laughs> um, but he got into this scene a little bit, and it was clearly a popular thing. So he's like, I'm a musician. Uh, I guess he played piano too, and he learned a few hundred really popular songs uh, on piano. And then started performing as the accompanist. Accompanist? <laughs> yeah. Accompaniment. I think that's the Latin plural. Accompaniment? <laughs> What's the word for the person? The accompanist? Accompanist? The accompaniment. <laughs> None of these sound right now. <laughs> it's accompanist. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 
that just sounds weird to me, but it's, you know how that goes. <laughs> Your brain just broke. It did a little bit. <laughs> so he was doing this uh, as the piano guy, the piano man, if you will. Uh-huh. And one day this customer comes in who had been frequenting these nights where he was playing piano. And he was like, listen, I'm a business guy. I got to go to a different city on the sales uh, for the sales meeting. And I got to take these uh, these other people out to, you know, to go out drinking and singing after. And you're my guy. I can't like I can only sing along with you. So would you mind recording something for me that I can bring along? And he said, sure. So he recorded some stuff on a reel-to-reel, gave it to him. The trip was a big hit. And the guy came back and said, I need more of these. Yeah. And that was, you know, literally the aha moment. He grabbed Deska Inouye by his lapels and shook him and said, give me more, man. <laughs> I need some more. And he did. And apparently right at this time as he was being shaken, uh, Deska left his body, astrally project elsewhere into the universe where he was greeted by the same entity that um, – that led to the creation of uh, ketchup. And the same entity has ketchup and karaoke under its belt because it met with Deska and said, this is, like, pay attention to what's happening right now. Invent karaoke. And Deska basically came back to his body and said, I have it. I have this great idea. I'm going to invent a machine that is basically me, what this guy wants me to do live, that I can multiply, create a bunch of different machines that do the same thing, and it's going to be the first karaoke machine ever. And that's what he did. He came up with something called the Juke 8, which is a great name. Yeah, it's cool looking. Uh, I mean, the idea, I mean, you can look up pictures of the guy with this thing, and it's, you know, it's about the size of a small guitar amp or something. Which is not bad. You'd think it'd be the size of like a smart car or something for the first prototype. (laughs) Back in the day. Yeah. But it was simple. I mean, they had amps at the time. They really just combined a few technologies, which was an eight-track player, right? From a car, uh, a car, a car eight-track player is what they started with. Oh yeah, and a which are really no different than any other eight-track players. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe they worked better in motion. I don't know. No, that, but that's probably why those cars were so big because they had to be that big back in the day to hold the eight-track to fit player. An eight-track? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it was like an 8-track player mixed with, a you know, an amp or a PA, a small PA. And his idea was, you know, he called it the Juke 8 because it was kind of like a jukebox, mm-hmm. is that you would put money in it like a jukebox to get a certain amount of time on the clock, uh, which I think was kind of brilliant instead of like a song. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I think the idea is that people would just keep feeding it. Yeah, he actually specifically said that he chose five minutes a hundred yen, about thirty-five cents, bought you five minutes of of singing time, so that you'd be partway through the second song and have to put more money in to finish the yeah. second song. He was a <laughs> he, he was a sharp tack in a lot of ways. Well, in some ways, in some ways. <laughs> uh, so uh, I think they took a couple of months to build each. Uh, they cost them about four hundred and twenty-five bucks, which is about twenty-seven hundred today, and. Uh, he said, I, I got to get some of these tracks recorded. So he got a bunch of his friends to record, you know, musicians to record these instrumental mm-hmm. tracks, started shopping it around and sold all 11 of those machines in pretty quick order. Yeah, I think um, I, I don't know if he sold them or if he took them as like basically 
um, like a, proof of concept. Collect the money. Yeah, something like that. Either way, he did get them in uh, 11 different clubs around Kobe, um, and everybody was glad to have them there to look at, and that was about it. They just sat there, and nobody did anything with them. Nobody knew quite what to do with them, and even if they did, I think it took, you know how much gumption it takes in an established karaoke place when oh, other sure. people are doing it. Imagine being literally the first person yeah. to do karaoke. <laughs> like, you probably would, you know, it, it just took a little bit. So, um, Desica hired somebody, uh, uh, he said, a pretty girl in a, a sexy outfit is how he put it in that one autobiography, um, and had her go around to all these 11 clubs and basically, like, sing karaoke. And she did it um, because he hired her to, but apparently she came back and was like, I would do that again just for fun. That was a lot of fun. And from that point on, basically, the whole concept of karaoke took off, at least in Kobe. Yeah, there were about 200 of these machines uh, in and around Kobe uh, in pretty short order. And I think it's a good time to take a break. I think it is, too, because karaoke is just simmering. The the lid is like rattling on the pot right now. Yeah, it's about (laughs) to blow. All right, we'll be right back. Well, now, when you're on the road, driving in your truck, why not learn a thing or two from Josh and Chuck? It's Stuff You Should Know. All right. Okay, Chuck, so there's rendered fat spitting out the sides of the pot and steam going everywhere. I just burned my hand on it. Let's Mm -hmm. tear the lid off of this sucker, (laughs) which is tangential to my uh, karaoke motto of tearing the roof off the sucker. That's right. So they're going gangbusters in Kobe. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's not too far from Osaka, which is a a bigger city. And a couple of entrepreneurs from Kobe said, this is great, but we need to get this to Osaka. Mm -hmm. And they brought a Juke 8 around, kind of showed it around. And it really hit big to the tune of uh, they were moving about 25,000 of these a year pretty quickly. Yeah, because so remember I said that Kobe was like a perfect place for karaoke to to kind of be incubated because people already did these sing-alongs. In Tokyo and Osaka, it wasn't like that. They liked watching an actual band perform or listening to actual songs on the jukebox. Um, But when these guys, they could not find the name of this club. But when they opened essentially the first karaoke club in Osaka, um, I guess it just hit at just the right chord, just the right time. And all of a sudden, Osaka was a karaoke town. And in very short order, Tokyo was as well. Um, And because it kind of blew up for the first time in Osaka, Osaka is considered the birthplace of karaoke, even though it really uh, was born in Kobe, like very plainly. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned earlier that he was a pretty sharp tack in some ways. Uh, In others, and I'm not saying he wasn't smart, but he didn't patent the thing. His brother-in-law said he really should patent this Juke 8. Mm-hmm. He said, you know what? Patent law is really complicated here in Japan. It's super expensive. Uh, you know, all I can patent is the business model because all of these, you know, it's just a combination of other components that already have patents on them. Right. Uh, which is, you know, I guess it's just different. I know just from my Shark Tank viewing that, in America, if you put together these different or any different technologies in just the right way, right. You, you can get a patent, you know, not always. But um, 
I've seen patents go through where I'm like, well, that's just this, this, and this. Right. They're like, yes, but we combine them. But that's an, and the patent office recognized it. Yeah, it's, I think it's called an improvement or something like that. And I actually read this really interesting article, Chuck, in Aeon magazine, like, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, um, where it basically made the case that we stopped actually innovating. We humans did back in maybe the 60s or 70s and that everything we've invented since then is basically just putting (laughs) existing stuff together. And they use the example of the iPhone, which basically is like, it's amazing. It's this amazing technology, but it's, you know, it's a, a camera. It's also a phone. It's also your email. It's also text. Like, it's all these existing things just put together in one convenient place. Um, and and that, that's a really great example of how we actually stop, like, creating new stuff and just basically repurposing, repackaging existing stuff. And that hopefully we're due for another huge technological advancement sometime soon if we don't um, – just decline from utter decadence before we get the, the <laughs> chance to do that. Yeah, I remember uh, there was a meme a few years ago, or probably a little more than that, what, that showed a, this the front page of a Radio Shack magazine ad or whatever. Uh-huh. And it was in at the bottom, it said, all of these are now on your smartphone. <laughs> right. And it was like 40 things, you know, from like tape recorders to microphones to cameras to, uh, you know, Thing, uh, what's the thing that tells the temperature? The, a an accompanist. <laughs> but basically, everything you know on that page is now on an iPhone. It's kind of like, well, now I see why Radio Shack is no longer around. Yeah, poor Radio Shack. They really they did a lot there, and they got kind of dissed at the end. It was pretty great. I love that store. It was, and they had a really cool logo too. Agreed. Um, so. So you said that uh, that he did not patent the uh, karaoke machine, the Juke Eight, right? Yeah, I mean he made plenty of money still, though. Yeah. So yes, he still manufactured Juke Eights, Eights, and sold them, and you know he sold tens of thousands of them a year, and they were his machine. So basically, for a long time, until bas- until other competitors figured out that there wasn't a patent on this thing, um, if you wanted a karaoke machine, you had to go to Deska Inouye, right, and buy one. So yes, he yeah. definitely made money, and he he continued to make money over the decades and through the years, selling like um, equipment or. Um, CDs, stuff like that, right? So he was fine. And he actually seems very zen about this. But it is entirely clear that had he patented this, and I think this really kind of drove home to me just how globally popular karaoke is, he would have been a billionaire many times over just from inventing karaoke and kicking back and, and taking the royalties from that initial patent. He doesn't like. I agree, though. He doesn't seem like that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. From reading about him, it it seems because once you do that, your job then is is fighting people in court exactly. for a living. Yeah, yeah. And that who, who wants to do that? No, he didn't seem interested in it. He also wondered, I think, in that one autobiography article, if it would have taken off, um, had had he had a patent on it. Oh, right. It might not have just gotten as big as it was. I think that, yeah. you know, which is a pretty, an argument in favor against intellectual property laws. But I think we should do an, an episode just on intellectual property one day. Let's do it. Let's do it, Chuck. Uh, you know, who didn't feel that way was uh, an inventor from the Philippines named Roberto Del Rosario, mm-hmm. because he did get a patent on his karaoke sing-along system in 75 uh, and, you know, I guess he, I don't know his full story, but uh, surely he knew what was going on with the Juke 8 
and knew that he could kind of capitalize on that. He, I read a uh, little bio on him, and apparently he claims that he had no idea about um, karaoke as mm. far as Japan is concerned, and that he invented it independently. So who knows right. about that? But he's also very frequently cited as an inventor of karaoke, incorrectly. Um, and then there's another guy, too, who we'll meet. Actually, let's meet him right now. There's a guy named um, Kei Takagi. Come on in, Takagi. So Kei uh, is a uh, he was a Japanese businessman who happened to manufacture um, karaoke machines. And the reason that he's frequently cited as the inventor of karaoke is because he and another guy named Earl Glick are the two men who introduced karaoke to the West through a machine debuting in 1982 called the Singing Machine. Yeah, and we should say that, uh, you know, Dave, one of our great writers, helped us put this together, and he got a lot of this stuff Mm -hmm. uh, from this point forward uh, from a book by a man named Brian Raftery called Don't Stop Believin', colon, (laughs) How Karaoke Conquered the World and Changed My Life. And uh, I think this is kind of one of the seminal books on karaoke. That's the impression I have as well. Um, But, you know, it came to America, like you said. It had been spreading throughout Japan. And obviously, with international business travel and international travel period, it's the kind of thing that eventually made its way to the States. And uh, this film producer, producer of Children of the Corn. Um, Earl, Earl Glick, Glick was? <laughs> yeah, that's sort of his most, most noteworthy movie. Wow. Because, I mean, well, he— <laughs> New respect? <laughs> he was, yeah. I mean, I had respect for him just being the head of Hal Roach Studios. Hal Roach Studios were responsible for Laurel and Hardy and our gang, the Little Rascals. Yeah. But by the time Earl Glick was presiding over it, it was like basically teetering on bankruptcy and, and resting on its laurels. N- had no idea that he produced Children of the Corn. So, yeah, mad respect to Earl Glick. <laughs> <laughs> so, in 1980, and again, this is a great story. I hope it really went this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was on a cruise ship, and he was playing blackjack, ran out of dough, and needed to double down and needed more money. Uh, because he had a great hand, apparently. And there was, uh, like you said, a man named, uh, is it Kai or K? K, which is short for uh, Kiso, Kisuburo. Kis, okay. Kisaburo. So K is nearby. He said, here's three three large. Uh, I can cover you on that. Gave him three grand, Glick one. And obviously, that formed a friendship. He was like, you're you're a great guy just to give me $3,000 like yeah, that. Yeah, and, and Kay was like, you're a great guy to pay me back. <laughs> exactly. And they, they bonded there on the cruise ship. And when they hit Tokyo and docked, uh, Takagi took uh, Mr. Glick back to his office, said, hey, look at this karaoke thing. It's pretty great. You should get these going in the States. And Glick was like, yeah, I'm not so sure about this. But Takagi was... Uh, not to be deterred, and over the next year would kind of send him sales figures to the point where Glick was like, hey, there's some real money to be made here. Yeah, so, so I mean, it, at least in Japan, by this time, 1980, 81, 82, karaoke had been like a huge sensation in Japan for a full decade. Like, it changed the culture. Um, Desuka, in a way, basically points to the invention of karaoke as, like, giving 
like all of these intensely overworked Japanese office workers a way to like blow off steam and like just feel better about themselves that they otherwise didn't have. So it really took off in Japan. But it was questionable whether it was going to take off in America. So it wasn't like a given thing that just because the sales figures were high in Japan that they were going to translate into America. And at first, actually, that is how it went. When they came up with the singing machine in 1982, um, apparently Kei Takagi would demonstrate it on the street and get booed um, right. because, as he recounted later, it seemed like the American public like took offense or was generally agitated when people who weren't professionals publicly performed music. And that was the yeah. whole basis of <laughs> karaoke. It still is. It's reasonable, though. Yeah, I mean, here's my deal. Like, if someone, there can be a certain amount of bad that's still kind of entertaining and fun. Depends. But there are some that's so bad where it's just you're waiting and waiting for that song to end. It's just so painful. Sure. And that's when that's when you boo. To let them know oh, that like no. you need to you need to stop <laughs> I would never this. Do that. <laughs> no, there's a certain booing threshold for sure, especially when you know that they are essentially deliberately singing badly. They deserve to be booed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a different thing. If someone is just super drunk and being really obnoxious no, you can, and has you a can microphone boo them in their too. hand, that's different. <laughs> it's when they're trying and they're bad, that's when you shouldn't boo them because you will totally shatter their spirit forever. Yeah, so it's it's up to you as an individual to cast that judgment at that moment. Exactly. <laughs> Just use it wisely is all I'm saying. That's right. Yeah. All right, so the it's not taking off quite yet. Uh, he's demonstrating it, like you said, not doing a good job. Uh, as legend has it, Glick supposedly even took it to Frank Sinatra, who will figure in, always figures in at karaoke, it seems like. Yeah. And Frank was like, no, thank you. He said, what is this hunk of junk, baby? <laughs> You can you can do Sammy. I'll do Frank from now on. Okay. <laughs> that was actually it's, me doing a bad <laughs> Phil Hartman impression of Frank Sinatra. Uh, well, mine is just Billy Crystal doing uh, doing Sammy Davis Jr. So oh, I like to think of you doing Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> well, it's funny because uh, Sammy was actually there when Frank turned it down. He was like, "I don't know, man. You could make some real dough with this thing." <laughs> and Frank said, "Don't contradict me, Sammy. <laughs> Not in front of Glick." <laughs> oh boy, yeah. that's pretty good. Phil Hartman. Uh, I think Joe Piscopo used to do it back in the day. Yeah, but I yeah. always like Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman was a great member. <laughs> he was doing some like um, roundtable discussion about current topics or something, and Sinead O'Connor uh-huh. was one of the <laughs> panel members, and he kept calling her like yeah. cyanide and cue ball, and like right. <laughs> she she was like trying to have this you know legitimate conversation or whatever. He just kept dismissing her. Jan Hooks, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was great. Great. That was back when he was really mad at her because she tore up the picture of the Pope protesting abuse. Oh, yeah. And it's like, maybe we should revisit that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I think Sinead was kind of right on on target there. She's still around. I can't remember. I was reading about her not too long ago. And I mean, she's still, if not putting out music, I think she's an artist, at least. She's still creating. Still creating Mm -hmm. things? Yeah. Uh, So karaoke takes hold in uh, at least... On the West Coast. And I saw some places, like we're going to cover the East Coast and the West Coast. <laughs> I saw that before this even happened. The Midwest. Yeah. Did you see that? No, I was totally joking. Really? Yeah. I, I, I saw an archived New York Times article about uh, the place we're going to talk about in Manhattan. Uh-huh. And they said that it had already been sort of making the rounds in the Midwest f- because of Japanese auto workers. Oh, wow. That's really impressive. 
So, but it was in the Midwest, and no one knew about so, it. So, yeah. So, did did this predate dimples on the West Coast, though, or did it kind of also simultaneously go on in L.A.? Well, if dimples, what year was dimples? Dimples, I have the impression, was in the mid '80s. I would say probably. Let's go with '85. No, no, Maybe I'm sorry. '87 the... is when it really took off. Well, the article in the New York Times was from '87, and they said that it had already been a thing in the Midwest. Huh. So. Wow, that's that's really hats off to Pika for innovating with karaoke in the U.S. Probably Detroit, maybe. I guess that's. Kinda, I don't know where the Japanese auto manufacturing was back then. I wonder if it was Japanese executives coming over and talking about karaoke, or American auto executives going over to Japan and learning about karaoke, then coming back to the Midwest and being like, "Let's do something tonight." Right. I put on a bunch of mufflers today. <laughs> exactly. I'm ready to unwind yeah. and build something That's out. really interesting, man. Nice nugget. So, Dimples, uh, like we mentioned, it was until, I think, the mid-2000s, a bar in Burbank. 2014 from what I saw. Oh, is that when it closed? Yeah. Okay. In, in, um, in favor of a whole food to be built over the top of it. The whole food? <clears throat> well, there are multiple whole foods. <laughs> So, yeah, Whole Foods was built over the time. Uh, so this is in Burbank right across from Warner Brothers Studios. And uh, the owner there, Sal Ferraro, bought um, a bunch of these karaoke cassettes. Mm-hmm. He had started advertising like, hey, we're America's first karaoke, uh, karaoke bar. You're going to love it. People didn't catch on at first, but they kind of took a page from the earlier days uh, with Dice K when they um, said, well, there are plenty of young, attractive um, actors and actresses out here. So let's just get some of those in to perform. And it took off. People like, well, I want to be a star too. <laughs> right, exactly. And people started hitting the mini stage. So, yeah. So this was, um, Dimples was is known as America's first karaoke bar, apparently incorrectly. But um, it, it, it certainly was America's first widely known karaoke bar because it was in L.A. But it was extremely old-fashioned in a lot of ways. Number one, there were no K-boxes, which we'll talk about in a minute. It was you performing on stage in front of the whole bar. That's that's considered an old-fashioned style karaoke bar. Yeah. Number two, um, you probably don't necessarily know every single lyric to the song you're singing. So they would hand you a book with laminated pages with the lyrics. So you would be reading from a big binder while you were trying to sing and perform at the same time. That's certainly very old-fashioned. And then um, also, number three, um, I think there were only two now that I say number three. (laughs) I think it was those two that made it super old-fashioned. So you perform in front of strangers, and then you had to read from a book. And so Dimples apparently really took off, and then karaoke also really took off around the world when they added something called CD plus G, which is compact disc plus graphics. Um, Oh, that was the third one. They would literally use eight tracks or cassettes of recorded karaoke music. And then all of a sudden in the late 80s, you had a disc that you could buy that had a whole bunch of karaoke songs. But then also it had a video component to it as well so that you could see the lyrics on screen. And around the late 80s is when karaoke as we know and love it today was was born. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite things still about karaoke is that sometimes it can still have that old school look with like a... A, a nature scene like a waterfall right. behind that looks like it's like this looks like the late 80s yeah up on screen in front of me it's delightful yeah or at least the early 90s you know 
Yeah, so that was the West Coast. Uh, in New York, there was a place called Sing Along uh, that opened in 87. And this was opened by, uh, I think, like four people. Um, Zach Smith, who was a drummer for Scandal. Um, great band, if you remember Scandal. I remember The Warrior. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then an attorney named Mindy Birnbaum and then Scandal's manager, David uh, Donald Zuckerman. Mm. And we also should say that they sort of put it on the Western map, but there were places already in Manhattan. Uh, there was one in Chinatown called Lotus Blossom, uh, another one at a restaurant called Ichiban. So there were some karaoke bars in Manhattan, but kind of like with everything else, they're like in you know, history says until it's introduced to like white America. Right. Doesn't exist. Like it doesn't exist. Maybe yeah. we'll mention it later in a retrospective in 30 years. Exactly. Yeah. So, but it did hit it big because of Sing Along. So, are you saying that Sing Along spread karaoke in America more than Dibbles did? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> Although they did franchise, I think they opened one in Buckhead here in Atlanta as the second one. Is that right? Mm hmm. And then, so Sing Along um, was also this place that innovated the KJ, the karaoke yeah. jockey. <laughs> Not, <laughs> I couldn't help myself. That was totally involuntary. Jockey. Yeah. Um, but the KJ is the guy who um, is like English Dan, who, you know, gets everybody psyched up to come up on stage. English Nick. English whoever. English Dan yeah. was a Yacht Rock guy, right? I'd really uh, like to see you tonight. I don't know. Yeah, it was. It was English Dan. English Nick um, was a KJ. English Dan was oh, a Oh, yeah, English Dan guy. and John Ford Coley. Exactly. Yes. Um, that was a great song, too. Sure. Um, but so the KJ was innovated at sing-alongs, too. And you said the second sing-along was in Buckhead, right? Yeah, I think, and then Chicago was next. So that would have been, like, the early 90s because the late 80s saw, like, the the— beginning of the entrenchment of karaoke and then the spread really took off in the 90s and all of a sudden it was like pop culture everywhere karaoke the first time for the first time in america in the 90s yeah and it's funny to go back and read um i know dave pulled a, a quote from the ajc here in atlanta but to go back and read that new york times article sort of describing what karaoke is is, is really very charming i know i'm saying contemporary journalism is just so <laughs> helpful i love it it's neat because they're like, you know, people get up on stage who have never sung before. Right. And some people are bad and some people are great, but everyone has a good time. Yeah, It's like, that's karaoke. Yeah. And so, you know, people made fun of it, but it was still an extremely popular thing to do. Typically like ladies night, trivia night, karaoke night. Like it wasn't necessarily like a karaoke bar, but it was kind of everywhere. Um, but then there were places that were karaoke bars that started to spring up too. Um, and apparently it started to hit on hard times in the 90s. At least the trend started to die out a little bit. Grunge. I'm sure grunge had something to do with it. That was kind of a sea change when grunge came along. But then American Idol actually revived karaoke like gangbusters, basically. Yeah, I think that's a, a good place for a nice little uh, cliffhanger. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there. See, see what happens next. Okay. Did American Idol last? We'll find out <laughs> right after this. Well, now, when you're on the road, driving in your truck, why not learn a thing or two from Josh and Chuck? It's Stuff You Should Know. Stuff You Should Know. All 
right. Okay, Chuck, lay it on them. Yeah, American Idol comes on the scene. Uh, it was huge. I mean, I'm not sure what their ratings are like these days, but in those early years, it was like one of the biggest TV shows in the history of American television. Yes. And it apparently revived karaoke because people were seeing regular folks get up on stage and sing. And I think that just sort of coincided with um, people remembering like, hey, wait a minute, this karaoke thing that Kurt Cobain killed, um, that was kind of fun. Why are we too cool for school now? Exactly. Because, I mean, that that was, I guess, and kind of is what American Idol is. You got an accompanist playing and mm. you're singing. And that's, yeah, so it kind of made people like, get back into it a little bit. So um, that that was, I think, 2002 was the season, the first season, where Kelly Clarkson beat Dr. Pepper's Lil Sweet in the finals. Um, Who? Haven't you seen that Dr. Pepper ad with Lil Sweet? Uh, was it Lil Sweet, the runner-up? Yeah. Just, Justin remember. Guarini. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That guy. Yeah. Um, so American Idol was big, and then... That that was like regular America was like, oh, yeah, let's go karaoke. And I forgot about that. And then cool indie America um, got back into karaoke thanks to uh, Lost in Translation. Yeah. Uh, you know, the very famous scene in the Sofia Coppola film where Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson are in a K-Box having a lot of fun on their big night out in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a really great movie and a great scene. Um unlike all of the scenes in the 2000 film duets. One of the worst ever. And like, I mean, you know, obviously there's like um, Absolution, The Journey or whatever, that Mario Lopez movie that Rift Tracks recently released. Like there's obviously really, really, really bad movies out there. They're so bad. They're almost unwatchable. Duets is bad. Like on a on an offensive level that that <laughs> is, is really hard to put into words. It's so... Because they clearly sunk money, time, yeah. effort, and thought into it, and it's still <laughs> so bad. Like these other bad movies, somebody just pooped it out in like a couple of months. This is like a huge major motion picture, and it's so bad that it's, it almost like ticks me off just thinking about how bad that movie was and that it got released. Yeah, I never saw it. Um, if you don't know what we're talking about, this is the movie directed by Bruce Paltrow, Starring his daughter Gwyneth, uh, Huey Lewis, Paul Giamatti, uh, Andre Brower, Scott Speedman, a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. And it's literally about karaoke. Uh, and I watched the trailer today, and now I have that stupid cruising song in my head, and I'm so mad. Yeah, yeah. That Geico commercial where they're on the moon gives me flashbacks of duets because that's like the main song oh, really? that they sing in it. Yeah. Uh, I didn't see that commercial. I do have to say there's one thing where I didn't know it was Bruce Paltrow that directs it, but um, there's a shot where Huey Lewis and I think Gwyneth Paltrow are checking into a hotel, and the it's like, like the scene ends and Gwyneth Paltrow leaves the shot, and Huey Lewis just stands there, and he spikes the camera and blinks <laughs> oh, really? a couple of times. And you see <laughs> more clearly than you ever possibly could how blank— it is inside of Huey Lewis's head. You just see it. And maybe he's not blank all the time, but for that moment, he was totally blank. And it's great. Oh, wow. it's, it's one of the great shots of all time. But that movie is just— check that out just for that. that it's, it's, it's worthwhile. <laughs> the whole movie is worthwhile just to see that one shot. But it is. It's so bad. I love Huey Lewis, too. So yeah, me too. Nothing against him. It's very him. sad. You got to see it. But, but uh, Lost in he, Translation was the exact— <laughs> 
opposite of duets, or that scene was. Yes. Yeah, it made it cool and hip again, like you said. And um, it was already kind of picking up steam anyway, but right. that definitely was like, well, if Bill Murray can wear an Inside Out t-shirt and get up there and sing, uh, uh, what was it, Elvis Costello? I don't remember what he sang. I think he did Peace, Love, and Understanding. No, nice. Uh, so that put it back on the map. And now I guess we need to talk a little bit about just the the industry side of it. Because, you know, when you're putting hundreds and hundreds of songs out performed by different people, like these aren't the original versions. They're recorded by, you know, uh, session players and session singers. Because mm-hmm. uh, you always have that, you know, sort of background track going. And... There's a lot of money going. I mean, karaoke is like a $10 billion industry or something. And everyone gets a cut. Like if you wrote the song or performed the song or if you have the publishing rights to the song, everyone has to say, it's okay to have my my song recorded for karaoke. Right. And it's okay to have it performed. And each one, there are different monies that people have to pay. Yeah, there's a mechanical fee to actually record the song. There's a synchronization fee to, to um, sync up the lyrics with it, any kind of video presentation. Um, there's a performance fee if it's not done in a K-Box, which I don't even know if we said a K-Box is just a little soundproof room that you can rent that's a private room for you and your friends or whatever to perform karaoke. And so you're not doing it in front of strangers. You don't have to wait for other people to go. You just go mm, as often as you one. want. It is. And then it's also, it's just way more fun. And most karaoke places have K-boxes now. Um, but if you're if you're not in a K-box, if it's in front of people, you probably have to also pay a performance fee as well. Not yeah. you, the karaoke person, but either the venue or the KJ or the company that's actually directing this. Because time was, you used to have to get an eight-track and everything was very tightly regulated. Now there's centralized servers, basically, that exist in countries around the world that have these huge databases of karaoke songs. So, where if you go into a karaoke place, it's just hitting up a computer, probably in the Philippines or Malaysia or something like that, and it's sending back that song and the lyrics with it um, onto your video screen and through the sound system. So, to keep up with all of that is really, really difficult, and there's a lot of um, lawsuits that were that were um, filed. Uh, probably the biggest one was Sony Music suing KTS Karaoke. They sued him for like $1.25 billion for copyright wow. infringement. Yeah, I mean, there have been plenty of lawsuits. Um, and the same goes with, I think, jukeboxes. And anytime you have a venue where people perform music, if there are cover songs p- performed and stuff. Yep. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a sort of a legal quagmire. And uh, like you said, even more complicated these days when you can be um, sort of off book and just do like a a YouTube version on a Wednesday night at the bar and sort of be off grid as far as people uh, seeking money are concerned. But if you're a legit karaoke club, obviously you're doing it right or have a legit real karaoke night with a company coming in, they're doing it right as in, paying all the artists and stuff like that. Uh, But there are, you know, some artists who have never signed away their rights. Uh, I think Springsteen is one. There are some people who used to, but now the songs uh, have been removed. Um, Like a few Prince songs, Bon Jovi, ABBA, Coldplay have removed certain songs. Yeah. uh, um, Maybe because of complications or because they couldn't get everyone on board. But if you used to sing a song and you come back a few years later and it's not available, that may be why. Yeah, 
probably is. So what's weird is that you would think would kill karaoke, but the the burgeoning of the internet and YouTube and just basically people creating karaoke songs at their house and being able to in like a home studio with just their laptop has actually kept it going. So karaoke doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Although it does seem to be getting more and more removed from the group. There's a new thing called um, Wankara, which is a solo karaoke singing box. There's room for one person in there, and that's all the rage mm. in Japan right now, from what I understand. Maybe it's just like a practice session. Nope, it's just, I just want to sing because I want to sing. <laughs> it's what it's No, for. no, no. I mean, you know, I bet, I'm sure there's been a person who's like, before I try my chops in front of people, I'm going to rent one of these for myself. Sure, but I think there's also people who are like, all I want to do is Wankara. I don't want to talk to any of you. Yeah, I'm mad I'm sure at that you happens. guys. Uh, there are home karaoke machines, obviously, you can buy. There are apps now. Uh, one of the great delights of my life is when my brother sends me uh, a Smule song, S-M-U-L-E. Mm-hmm. It's a singing app where he will be sitting in traffic and he'll record a full song. And my brother's a, singer, a better singer than me. Mm-hmm. And he'll just send me like, you know. I'll just get a text, and it's attached. Like, here's a smule from Scott Bryant. <laughs> I've not heard of that. It's great. I mean, I have it too. I don't use it much, but he's he's kind of a smule king. And you can <laughs> connect with other people to do duets and stuff like that you don't even know. So there's a, a whole community around it. So um, we, I know we've talked about it before, but we can't stop until we talk about the my way killings and violence in general around karaoke because there have been – Yeah, there there was something called the my way killings, which we talked about in our Is Tone Deafness Hereditary um, episode. Um, but at least six people have been killed in the Philippines – during or after a performance of My Way, Frank Sinatra's song, My Way. Um, and there's all sorts of interpretations of why that My Way is a really popular song. And so, you know, and bar fights happen, so it just was coincidence. Other people are like, no, they really take My Way very seriously in, in the Philippines. And if you sing it tone deaf, you're in trouble. Um, but it wasn't just My Way. Apparently, John Denver's uh, Take Me Home Country Roads is one of the bloodiest songs of all time, right? <laughs> Is that a murder trigger? I I guess there was a guy in Thailand who killed eight of his neighbors, eight partygoers at his next-door neighbor's house, one of whom was his brother-in-law, because they would not stop singing, and they sang Take Me Home Country Roads, and he went over and shot them all dead. I mean, clearly other stuff going on there. Yeah, he seemed a little high-strung, but, like, it was the karaoke (laughs) that had had pushed him over the edge, for sure. Yeah. uh, What do you think Frank would say about the My Way killings? (laughs) You gotta lighten up sometimes, baby. <laughs> I tell you what they don't kill people to, man, is Mr. Bojangles. <laughs> you got that right, Sammy. <laughs> uh yeah, and you know, we should also mention too that it is huge in the Philippines. Like anywhere you go almost in public, there might be it's sort of like the uh going to Nevada and you know, there's a uh slot machine like Every time you turn around, except there's someone singing in the Philippines. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's huge in Asia in general. Yumi has this great story about how she would kind of, you know, go duck out and go to lunch and sing karaoke and go yeah. back to work afterward here <laughs> there. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, so, you got anything else? 
I got nothing else. All right. Well, if you want to know more about karaoke, just get up there and do it. It's not going to kill you, and you're going to be happy that you did. And since I said you're going to be happy, that means it's time for listener mail, of course. Uh, This is from a a new 15-year-old fan. Uh, Hey, guys, big fan of the show, writing to say hi. Just turned 15. I'm from California. I started listening in December, so I'm fairly new, but you guys have quickly become my number one show. Uh, Multiple times I've heard y'all say that you lose listeners around high school, but I'm here to assure you that there are high school listeners out there. Uh, Anyway, a big reason why I love the show is because all the seemingly boring topics you cover. There's so many ordinary things that we take for granted that have uh, such an interesting history, like barcodes, for instance. That has been one of my favorite episodes so far. Uh, I'm glad that uh, Natalie is saying this because that's something that we love about the show is our episodes like ballpoint pens and barcodes, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, that seem boring but turn out to be fascinating. Love it. Uh, Just today I was asked for a random fact. I was able to talk about the failure of the Pony Express, thanks to you guys. I also want to say thank you to everyone at Stuff You Should Know for keeping the show so enthralling yet educational. And like so many other listeners, it's helped me through the tough times. I can always count on you for laughter, education, and tangents, Hmm. one of my favorite parts of the show. Uh, And then a final very kind correction. Uh, and we welcome those because <laughs> now we get to the meat of it. <laughs> have been very unkind lately. Uh, yeah, we've I guess noticed. so. <laughs> it almost feels like there's a new breed of listener who's like, "Look, I don't know who you jerks are, but I think you're jerks, and here's everything I think that you're a jerk about." Uh, it, there's been a lot of that. Yeah. I, I think it's uh, I don't know what it, it is. It, maybe the uh, pandemic wearing on people. Who I, it could be. We've gone through waves of that though, where we'll get like a new swath of listeners, in, and then like six months later, we'll hear from a lot of them again. And be like, look, I'm really sorry about that first email. I really <laughs> I can't do without you guys. Yeah, you still don't know what you're talking about a lot of the times, <laughs> right. but I like. But you. I find it endearing now. <laughs> it's weird. Uh, she, uh, Natalie, listened to the Walrus episode. I'm sure you got email about this, but wanted to make sure you knew. The beach creatures by the Hearst Castle that you thought were sea lions are elephant seals. And that is Natalie, last name redacted, and she says, P.S. Don't Be Dumb was a great series. Well, that was nice. I, I don't know that anyone else ever wrote in to correct that, so thanks a lot, Natalie. Nicely done. Totally. Um, that was a great email, Natalie. Perfectly done. Welcome to the fold, and good luck with high school. If you want to be like Natalie and get in touch with us, you can send us an email. Wrap it up. Spank it lightly on the bottom and send it off to stuffpodcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.